trying to keep calm in East Asia today, Friday, April 5th. This is The World. I'm Marco Werman. A sixth human death from a new strain of bird flu sets off alarms in China. The Chinese government says it's going into nationwide alert on this. Meanwhile, next door in North Korea, the government suggests foreign diplomats leave Pyongyang amid mounting war talk. We hear how South Korea's news media are handling that crisis. We're trying not to feed into the North Koreans' mindset of wanting more attention. And later, how a couple of Canadians became Islamist militants and wound up dead in Algeria. The thinking is, at this point, that someone turned them. This is The World from Public Radio International, the BBC World Service, and WGBH Boston. PRI's The World is brought to you by Medtronic, supporting the work of Wired International, providing medical and healthcare information and education in the developing world and in regions affected by war. Now on Facebook, look for Medtronic NCD. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. You know, springtime here in the U.S. isn't normally a time to worry about the flu. Reported cases of the seasonal flu have been declining around the country as the days get warmer. But it's a different story altogether for cases of bird flu in China. Today, Chinese authorities reported a sixth death from a new strain of bird flu. We called up the world's Mary Kay Magsat in Beijing for the latest on reaction in China to these cases. The Chinese government says it's going into nationwide alert on this. It has decided to close down the market where chickens are sold in Shanghai starting tomorrow, temporarily, until it figures out what's going on. There have been 20,000 birds culled because there had been some virus found in some of them, including in some pigeons in the Shanghai market. Do you have a picture? Does anyone have a picture of who has been infected? Are they young, old? Does their work involve handling birds? So there were a couple of people involved who work in markets with birds. There was one cook who would have handled, you know, possibly a live bird and then and then the meat afterward. But the victims of one of the first deaths uh, was an 89-year-old man. One of the youngest uh, people who got sick was a four-year-old child who recovered. Um, so it's a pretty widespread. As you said, the Chinese central government has announced a national alert. There's a sense of urgency they'd like to convey, obviously. But uh, 10 years ago, when the SARS epidemic began, uh, the Chinese government waited months to admit there was a problem. I gather there was also a delay this time with the announcement, right? What happened 10 years ago was that when SARS first appeared in Guangdong province in southern China, it was known to be this deadly flu. Local officials were concerned. It spread to Hong Kong. It spread elsewhere by March the World Health Organization had called it a global pandemic, and the Chinese government kept playing it down until late April. Why did it do that? Because 10 years ago in early March, there was a leadership transition, just like there was early this March. Right. The cases where the first two people died, that was late February. So it was just before the National People's Congress opened and the leadership transition occurred. It's really hard to know. You're implying that they wanted to wait until the leadership transition had happened before announcing it? Either local officials really didn't know what they were dealing with, or possibly the leadership decided, let's wait till after the leadership transition. It's, it's just impossible to know. Mary Kay, how worried are people in China right now? And what worries them more, the dead people, the confirmation of another bird flu virus, or the fact that the Chinese central government wasn't totally transparent about the deaths when they happened? 
Well, online there certainly have been comments about how do we know this isn't another cover-up? How do we know this isn't worse than what you're telling us it is? So far, both the World Health Organization and the U.S. Centers for Disease Control have said we're not yet seeing reason to be overly alarmed. Uh, in fact, I just got a notice from the U.S. Embassy here uh, that said, okay, here's the information you as a U.S. citizen in China need to know. So far, we don't think that this is spreading from human to human. There are investigations underway to figure out how this virus is spreading, but there's no need to be overly alarmed or to take excessive precautions. Speaking with us from Beijing, Mary Kay Mag said the world's China correspondent. Thank you. Thank you, Marco. Outside of China, the World Health Organization is weighing in today on the new H7N9 bird flu. A WHO spokesman in Geneva says despite the growing number of cases, so far there is no sign of a sustained spread of the virus among people. Meanwhile, the Centers for Disease Control here in the U.S. says it also has no evidence to suggest that the virus is being transmitted from person to person. Still, the CDC says it started work on a vaccine for the new flu just in case it's needed. It's that just in case that's got some observers of global public health paying close attention to what's going on in China. Among them is Laurie Garrett, a former journalist who's now a senior fellow for global health at the Council on Foreign Relations in New York. Laurie, you've been watching the crisis unfold and thinking publicly about various scenarios of how it happened and where it might lead. How concerned are you that we might be seeing the early days of something serious here? This has all the hallmarks of potentially turning into a new and quite striking pandemic of influenza. I say hallmarks, that doesn't mean it will, it doesn't mean it won't. It just says that all the pieces are falling into the kind of worrisome places Mm. uh, that we keep an eye on at this stage of an outbreak. What are those pieces? What are those hallmarks that you're seeing? Well, we know it just jumped from another species to human beings. It may very well have jumped through an intermediary species. So we know for sure now from the Chinese that um, a range of bird species, including pigeons, ducks, uh, doves, have been infected and carry the virus, but without any ill effect to those animals. It makes it very hard to control because you don't know which animals are sick and how people directly got exposed to these sick animals. Then there were was this huge die-off of some 20,000-plus pigs in the region. Um, and surely there were more dead pigs that did not float down rivers visibly. And we only have information on 34 of those carcasses, meaning the Chinese say they did not find the virus in those 34 tested carcasses. But genetic experts are looking at the sequences of the viruses that have been found so far in human beings, and they say, look, there's definitely mammalian markers in here. This virus has been through some kind of mammal before it got to humans. It's not just a bird virus anymore. And that's what is worrying. Whenever you have what's called a zoonosis, that moment when a virus jumps from one species to another, it typically hits the second species, meaning human beings, really hard. Our immune systems haven't seen it before. We don't have an instant appropriate immune response. And that leads to over-response, which I think is what's happening with a lot of these patients. When we hear that they have total organ failure throughout their bodies, that is an over-responsive immune system. That is a human being seeing something that that human's body has never seen before. 
So, Lori, how, how satisfied are you with assurances that this new flu uh, so far doesn't seem to be spread from human to human? I'm not satisfied with that at all. We have a family cluster that doesn't make any sense to me. In Shanghai, where three members of the same family got pneumonia at exactly the same time, two of them died of it. The one that did not is still being observed in critical care. Only one tested positive with their test for this flu. Well, what the heck caused coincidental pneumonia in the other two? I'm not satisfied with that explanation. So, Lori, the last time we spoke with you on this program was a couple of years ago, uh, soon after the Fukushima nuclear disaster in Japan. At the time, you were cautioning against the kind of hysteria that was starting to spread here in the U.S. and elsewhere about the danger of radiation. What's your message for people here now with this H7N9 bird flu? I don't think there's any cause for concern for Americans at this moment. We want to keep a close eye on it. We want to know that our public health authorities are keeping a close eye on it. My real concern, if this does indeed evolve into the next big flu, is that we've had significant cuts in all our public health services, state, local, federal. We have serious cuts at the federal level and at the CDC. This is not the time to be tightening our budgets and worrying about penny-pinching if we're going to face a pandemic. Laura Garrett, Global Health Fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations in New York. Thank you. Thank you. We've got much more from Laura Garrett, including a fascinating description of how viruses mutate and move from species to species. That's at theworld.org. Now to that other source of concern in Asia, North Korea. The North Korean regime seems bent on doing something new each day to raise tensions further. Today it warned foreign diplomats in Pyongyang that it cannot guarantee their safety after April 10th and suggested they leave. North Korea has been threatening to attack the U.S. and South Korea in response to what it calls the increased threat from the United States. Yesterday we heard how South Koreans aren't really paying much attention to North Korea's rhetoric. Today we want to find out how South Korean TV news is reporting the crisis. Jun Chang is a news anchor at KBS World, one of the biggest broadcasters in South Korea. KBS receives funding from the South Korean government, but it's independently managed. Jun, are the current tensions with North Korea at the top of news on every one of your broadcasts these days? Actually, it's on the top of the news for all the broadcasters in South Korea. Uh, the government is taking this situation very, very seriously. We are distributing the news as soon as we get a hold of the information. But of course, the information that we're getting, because it's very security sensitive, we can't release everything or we can't get a hold of all the information. But we are trying to release what we can. We're trying not to feed into the North Koreans mindset of wanting more attention also i mean but if people want to know what the news is i mean why not give them the straight facts well we are giving them the straight facts we also have a radio news that we provide at our station and we are giving information on north korea it's not in depth it's not very detailed uh, but we are giving highlights as to what's going on Um, And in our radio news, there is a significant amount of North Korean stories. So is the South Korean government playing any role in how you're covering this this really big and quite sensitive story? President Park Geun-hye, South Korea's president, has made it very, very clear that the situation with North Korea right now is very grave. It is very critical. It is very combustible. So we have to tread carefully. At the same time, she's also trying to tone down 
her words and her rhetoric uh, because it's further escalating this vicious cycle. She also does not want to create a public frenzy. So people have been listening to the news and they've been seeing that we have been putting out a lineup that's focused heavily on North Korea and clearly showing that it's a serious situation. Yet, however, South Koreans have been hearing this kind of news for years now, actually decades. So they're quite numb to what's going on. June, can you give me an example of maybe something that you've wanted to report and you had your kind of guidance from the South Korean government as to how to kind of cast a story? I mean, have they actually asked you to tone down your coverage in any way? Well, okay, there are some words, for example, that we would try not to use or when we're dealing with, for example, the North Korean news is ramping up its rhetoric to make it sound like a war will break out. So we, on the other hand, have to tone it down so that people don't get nervous. And even though there might be a low risk of an all-out war, there is a risk that North Korea will be having some kind of provocation soon, especially in light of the April 15th birthday of Kim Il-sung, who's the founding father of North Korea. Mm. So usually around that time, they want to do something to celebrate. And when they mean celebrate, they mean some kind of show of power. So with this celebration, there's a lot of misunderstandings that can take place. Uh, If there's a wrong move made, maybe a provocation can escalate into a bigger war. Do you think the North Korean government is sophisticated when it comes to using and manipulating the international media? I think they are quite calculating as to what they're doing. Um, I think what the international community has to realize, I've been hearing from a lot of tweets and a lot of SMS messages on Facebook and whatnot, a lot of people are saying, oh, the North Koreans don't know what they're doing. Actually, they are quite capable of using technology. So we're seeing that now the North is really trying to use the media as a tool for themselves. Jun Chang, news anchor at KBS World, one of the biggest broadcasters in South Korea. Thanks for taking time to talk to us. Thank you very much. Still ahead on the world, in South Africa, a student newspaper conducted a survey, and you're not going to believe the question they asked on PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from Medtronic, supporting the work of Wired International, providing medical and health care information and education in the developing world and in regions affected by war. Now on Facebook, look for Medtronic NCD. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Remember the attack on a natural gas plant in the Algerian desert last January? A band of al-Qaeda-affiliated militants stormed the gas plant deep in the desert and took dozens of foreign workers hostage. A four-day standoff followed before the Algerian army moved in, guns blazing. In the end, more than 60 people were dead, including hostages and attackers. Well, now we find out that two of the dead attackers were Canadian. According to police in Canada, they were a couple of young men from London, Ontario. Now the Royal Canadian Mounted Police are trying to piece together what led these young men to leave Canada to take part in the attack in Algeria. Adrienne Arsenault is a reporter with the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. She broke the story before the police announced the names of the two militants. Adrian, tell us how you found out about these men, uh, Ali Medledge and Chris Katsurubis. Well, this was really an investigation throughout the CBC. Really within the last week, it, the pieces started to come together. The realization that, you know, simply going through yearbooks, every high school yearbook in the city, 
for a period of about a decade until it became clear that these two men were tracked to one particular high school, which is London South Secondary School. Very big school, good school, good neighborhood. These two young men hadn't been in the same class, but they were friends throughout high school. Help us understand the timeline here. Where did they train? When did they go to Algeria? These are great questions. You know, so much of this is still uncertain. We know that uh, in the case of Chris, he, he first left school in 2007. Ali graduated in 2006. We can track them to Edmonton in 2007, where Ali and Chris and another young man traveled and tried to find work, didn't do very well. They got in trouble with the law. They got evicted. The pictures show they punched through doors and just trashed a poor woman's apartment. She threw them out. It didn't go very well for them. So they, they came back to London, Ontario. Chris, at some point in the high school, had converted to Islam. These kids, you know, were kids who were having trouble at home. Uh, in Chris's case, he, he seemed to, to be a quiet guy who was a little bit uh, marginalized from what, what we can tell from some of his other friends. They just were floundering. We can trace a third young man named Aaron Yoon, who was not part of the attack, but was from the same high school, also converted, also hung around with him, is now sitting in a jail in Mauritania. He was arrested before the attack. Uh, he was arrested, according to the officials of Mauritania, uh, as being connected with a group of jihadists. But he, he's still sitting there. He professes his innocence. But what he has to do with all of this, we're still trying to piece that together. And so what's going to happen to this third man, Aaron Yoon? Will he be extradited to Canada at some point? There are Canadian diplomats on, on their way to talk to the officials and to him. You know, it's interesting that they're doing that now. We, we can trace that he's been in jail since at least the summer of 2012. I, I think, you know, a lot of time has come and gone. We don't know exactly uh, how much contact they have had with him. His family, until a few days ago, were saying, no, he's fine. He's not He's not in jail. He's, he's overseas, and he's free to travel and free to talk. Uh, apparently not. Adrian, is it clear how these three men became part of an al-Qaeda affiliate in the Sahara Desert? This is the big, disturbing mystery that's keeping a lot of people awake at night because, you know, on the face of it, they seem to have every opportunity you would want to give your kids. You know, London is a, is a small city. This is generally a clean, safe, good neighborhood and, and community. The thinking is at this point that someone turned them and some people believe that the person who turned them is here. Some think that person is overseas. And the reason why I keep saying that person is because it, it's also quite clear to us that there's a fourth. And we don't know who or where he is, dead or alive. That we don't know. So if we can figure that out, we can, we can start to try to figure out who might be the recruiter, who might be the turner here. But CBC's Adrian Arsenault reporting from London, Ontario, about those local men who were part of that January attack in Algeria. We're staying in the greater Middle East for this next story. It's about a journalist in Dubai, a woman who saw the need for a new kind of comic book. So she wrote one. The world's Carol Hills has more. May El Shush has been working as a journalist in the United Arab Emirates for about 10 years. She's originally from Sudan. Last year, she found herself covering a Middle East comics conference in Dubai, where she's based. 
Elshush was amazed at the artistry of contemporary comics, the range of stories, the new technology, and the fans. But she also noticed something about the way female characters looked in Arabic comic books, which is an awful lot like the way they appear in American comic books. Think Catwoman. You see the very sort of busty and very, very tight sort of outfits and things like that. Alshush figured she wasn't the only one to find the portrayal stale and dated, so she decided to create her own comic book. This year, she's back at the same comics conference, not as a reporter, but to introduce her new graphic novel series called Drawn. The main character is less superhero than superheroine. Her name is Rayanne Lawsonia. Rayanne means door to heaven. And Lasonia is part of the scientific name for the henna plant. Henna is a big theme in Drawn. Rayanne gets a henna tattoo that turns her world upside down. It turns out the henna has given her mystical powers, and the story takes off from there. Growing up in that kind of culture, you know, henna is something that it's part of your everyday life. You see it all around, you know, just every day or in during celebrations and stuff. So. Um, I just took something that was a very huge part of my life and just adapted it into into the story and um, created the character of, of Rayanne. Rayanne is far from being Catwoman-like. First of all, she's a college student in New York City, but she hails from the Arab world. And visually, she's attractive yet modestly dressed. Rayanne wears pants, shirts, the occasional dress, and she wears a headscarf. Elshush relied on comics artist Sia Um to draw Rayanne. She says Um's assignment was to emphasize Rayanne's personality and intelligence instead of her physical beauty. As the story grows and then she's put into all these different situations, you kind of see her as a character gain much more strength. It makes her a little bit more more real, I believe, because you never really know what strengths you have until you're, you're tested or, or put into really difficult situations. Rianne Lawsonia is getting her first exposure this weekend at the Middle East Comic Con. Creator May Alshush is confident she'll get a good reception, and she expects the first full issue of Drawn to be released in September. For The World, I'm Carol Hills. And you can meet comic book heroine Rayanne Lasonia in an excerpt from the series Drawn at theworld.org. Tell us what you think of Rayanne, and we'll pass on your comments to May Alshush. Now, an update on a story we reported a few months back. Palestinian cartoonist Mohamed Sabane was detained without charge on February 16th while returning from a trip to Jordan. Human rights groups have pressed Israeli authorities for his release. Well, yesterday, an Israeli military court sentenced him to five months in jail and fined him nearly $3,000 for contact with a hostile organization while in Jordan. Today, Sabane's brother told Radio Netherlands the only thing Mohammed did was contact a publisher in Amman who publishes a book about Palestinian prisoners. I'm Marco Werman. A former member of a Central American gang in Los Angeles recalls how the group started with teenage war refugees who struggled to fit in. And so in school, we banded together, you know, to protect ourselves. And what started almost as a support group has now grown into this gang. That story ahead on The World. PRI's The World is brought to you by Medtronic, supporting the work of Wired International, providing medical and health care information and education in the developing world and in regions affected by war. Now on Facebook, look for Medtronic NCD. 
I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. The countries of Central America are still coping with the lingering effects of multiple wars, including the vicious cycle of gang warfare. Gangs that formed in Central American refugee communities here in the U.S. have spread back to Central America. Photojournalist Donna De Cesare has spent more than a decade chronicling that. Her new bilingual photo book is called Unsettled, and one of the people who helped De Cesare learn about the gang world is Susan Cruz. She's a former gang member who now works with troubled youth in the U.S. and Central America. When we spoke with the two of them, De Cesare and Cruz wouldn't discuss details like the names of gangs and their activities, but they shared a lot with us, including how they first met on the outskirts of San Salvador in 1993. I was hanging out with some former friends, and one of them came in excited and said, there's a woman, there's, there's an American, and she's, you know, she wants to take photographs of us. And I looked at him like he had lost his head, and I said, are you kidding? How do you know she's not a cop? Why did you bring her here? And I put on a jacket with a hoodie, and I put on these dark sunglasses in preparation, you know, for this woman, you know, that uh, who wanted to take our photos. Donna De Cesare, how do you remember that moment? Do you recall any mistrust and being the focus of paranoia? Yes. <laughs> Susan was wearing sunglasses and had the hooded sweatshirt tied up so tightly around her face you could hardly see any of her face at all. So obviously I knew she didn't trust me. And so that was that was my challenge was to to really kind of open up to her too and be honest about who I was to gain her trust. And then what happened? So Donna came in and she was very explicit and very detailed about what she was going to do. And I think I was pleasantly surprised that she knew Spanish. She told us that she had lived in El Salvador during the war. Uh, she knew about the history. And this was something, you know, that I think really opened the door for us, at least for me. Susan, I noticed that you said when you first met Donna, you were with uh, former friends. When you say former, are they no longer in contact with you or where are they? I would say that most of the people that were there, that they are either dead or doing life in prison. How did you make the break from the life? No gang member leaves the gang lifestyle by submitting a letter of resignation saying, guys, it's been great, but this is where we part ways. It doesn't work like that. We had formed this gang in Los Angeles as a way of protecting ourselves, defending ourselves. You know, we banded together for our own safety. And, and why, did for... you, why did you need to band together? Why did you need that security? During the 1980s, you had a lot of Salvadorans that migrated to the United States and in, in Los Angeles in particular, those who brought their children, just like, you know, me. We all shared common experiences of, you know, being uprooted and not understanding what was happening to us, not understanding why we were dropped in to what we were finding to be a hostile environment. Even though we spoke Spanish, we were facing discrimination and prejudice, not just, you know, from other races, but also from other Hispanics. And so the, the common thread, the solidarity of us was based on our nationalism of being this group of Salvadoran kids whose parents had survived horrible things during the war and were not in a position to talk about it. They were emotionally absent. They were physically absent working two, three jobs. And so in school, we banded together, you know, to protect ourselves. And what started almost as a support group of sorts has now grown into this gang, you know, that is beyond what any of us, you know, thought it would be. 
Donna, tell me about a woman named Flaca who's uh, profiled in your book. The photograph you have of her is taken from behind. Flaca doesn't want to show her face. You see her gang tattoo, but you can only see it if she's wearing her hair up. Flaca's Guatemalan. She ran away from an abusive home at 12, arrived in the U.S. as an unaccompanied minor. What happened to her when she got here? She worked odd jobs in the beginning, but she fell in love with a boy from the Mata Salvatrucha gang. She became pregnant. She wasn't really in the gang, you know, up until that point, but then she, she needed to survive, and so that was the family she had. And so she joined the gang. She ended up selling drugs on the street. One day she was shot by rival gangs, and so Flaca ended up being taken to the emergency room. She had her child with her, and she handed her baby to another homeboy who took the baby, and she said, you know, take care of my son. You know, I'm, I'll be coming back, you know, as soon as I get out of the hospital. Instead of getting out of the hospital, she got sent to prison because they found drugs on her, and then she ended up being deported to Guatemala. Once she got to Guatemala, she wanted to find out what happened to her kid. The gang members there told her, don't ask. And, you know, she said to me, Donna, I don't care if he's with a family that's taking care of him and he's happy. I just want him to know that his mother loved him, that I didn't abandon him, because she herself felt abandoned by her own family. And that was the most heartbreaking thing, was not knowing what happened to him and feeling that if he was alive, which she was desperately hoping he was, and loved, that he realized that his mother loved him too. Susan Cruz, you were the person who told Donna about Flaca. What do you remember most about her? Flaca and I did time together. And since I was the one to first leave, I made a promise to her that I was going to do everything in my power to, you know, to find her son. Unfortunately, every lead led to nowhere. And basically, the last that I had heard was, you know, that he had been taken up by a gang member who had then switched sides. And I was basically told to stop asking. I mentioned this to Donna because I, I didn't want to give up. I wanted you know, to try other ways of finding her son. I wanted to keep my promise. Donna, you spoke earlier about how these gang stories are like a Greek tragedy. I mean, I think of the case of Edgar Bolaños, a Salvadoran whom you met. Uh, Edgar had returned to El Salvador after gangs killed his brother in L.A. In fact, he believed that the bullet that killed his brother was meant for him. And part of this story was told by Edgar's tattoos. Explain that to us. When I met Edgar, you know, he looked so familiar. He was like a carbon copy of his brother. And then he took off his shirt and he showed me that he had a tattooed on his back his mother's name, Anna, and then a tombstone with the words, rest in peace, shy boy, which was his brother's gang name. Turned out that Edgar had taken his dead brother's name and was calling himself shy boy. I really felt that Edgar, in some sense, had decided that, you know, he was already a dead person by tattooing that on his back. And tragically, this is this is actually what happened to him. You know, I knew Edgar for a period, about five or six years, and I got a call from his mom telling me that he'd been murdered in El Salvador, and mm -hmm. she was told he was murdered by the death squad, the Sombra Negra. No one has ever found out who killed Edgar Bolaños. It's the police don't investigate crimes against young people who are gang involved. And this is part of what fuels the cycle of violence there. Susan, you knew Edgar Bolaños and his family. What about his story has hit home hardest for you? There are many shy boys. There are many flacas. And people don't seem, you know, to grasp how is it, you know, that we try something different. 
a young man is murdered and no one cares? How do we change this paradigm of a child, you know, is taken away from his mother and no one cares? Uh, I think that's what hits the hardest and the reason why I, I do the work that I do now because at least it gives me some relief that swimming against the tide, so to speak, but at least I'm, mm. I'm trying to do something. If at best, you know, just like Donna, you know, with her book, trying, you know, to bring back the idea into people's minds, you know, that these are human beings we're talking about. Susan, Donna, thanks very much for joining us today. Thank you, Mark. Thank you for having us. Former gang member Susan Cruz now works with youth involved in gangs in the U.S. and Central America. The new book by photojournalist Donna De Cesare is called Unsettled. You can see her powerful black and white photos of Flaca, Edgar, and others at theworld.org. South Africa may have moved on years ago from the racial segregation of apartheid, but race is still a very touchy subject there. Witness the uproar over a recent article on interracial dating published by the student newspaper at the University of Cape Town, the UCT. The article included a pie chart that touted the results of a survey entitled UCT Votes on the Most Attractive Race. According to the chart, the largest number of students said Caucasians were the most attractive. The world's Anders Kelto has been following the story. And Anders, what baffles me the most, uh, given the turbulent racial history of South Africa, why a student newspaper would come up with a poll like this in the first place? Well, that's a good question. And I don't think anyone except the author herself knows exactly why she did it. But some people actually are applauding the idea or the effort because race is such a contentious issue and people are so unwilling to talk about it sometimes that some people have said at the very least she's opening up a dialogue on this issue that's often avoided. Well, not to give the poll more credence, but I'm curious to know, uh, break it down for us. Who was polled and how many races were represented in this survey? Well, she asked a total of 60 people what race they're most attracted to. Those 60 people came from six different ethnic groups, 10 from each group. And, of course, asking 60 students in a school that has 23,000 is not going to give you a statistically valid result. And of those 23,000 at the University of Cape Town, what is the racial breakdown? It's a little under half white. It's about 20% international, and it's a smaller percentage of black and colored, which is a South African term for people of mixed race. Is there any affirmative action in place at the university? Yeah, UCT has a very controversial affirmative action policy that gives different standards of admission to people by race, so that if you're a black South African, the marks required to get into the university are lower than the marks that, for instance, a white South African would need. The university has said that it wants to move away from that policy and it wants to focus instead on disadvantage. But for the time being, they say that the best way to identify disadvantage is by using race as a proxy. I got to say, this is one of those episodes that could ruin a town and gown relationship. How's this playing out in Cape Town? It's hurting the city's reputation. Cape Town already sort of has a reputation as being a kind of racist place. There's an appalling amount of economic apartheid. It is still largely segregated, and the economic segregation often falls along racial lines. I gather the uh, editor-in-chief of the student paper has issued an apology and withdrawn the article, or at least the headline. What did the university officials have to say about this? The university issued a very neutral statement in which they basically said, we respect the newspaper's right to publish its own content. But they said that the thinking behind the article was rather worrying. Most importantly, they have said, we're not responsible for this. The world's Anders Kelto in Cape Town, South Africa. Thanks. Thanks, Marco. 
You can read Anders' blog about the lives of high school students in Cape Town. That's part of our year-long series. Just go to theworld.org slash school year. In just a moment, we'll ask a South African scientist this question, where would you find a coelacanth? But this is our GeoQuiz, so this is also a question for you, too. The coelacanth is called a living fossil fish because it predates the dinosaurs. And one likely place to find this rare species is in the waters off the east coast of South Africa. At least that's what a team of French and South African scientists is hoping for. They'll soon embark from South Africa's easternmost province. Can you name it? Its capital is Peter Maritzburg, and it looks out on the Indian Ocean. Let's find out more from one of those scientists now. Kerry Sink is a marine ecologist at South Africa's National Biodiversity Institute, and she's joining up with scientists from France's National Museum of Natural History to explore a certain bay in search of the rare and endangered coelacanth. So the bay we're talking about is called Sedwana Bay. And it is a bay in northern KwaZulu-Natal, the province on the east coast of South Africa. And it is in the Isimangaliso World Heritage Site. There we go. We got the answer right off the bat. It's KwaZulu-Natal province, South Africa. I asked Kerry Sink to tell me more about this living fossil fish that's older than the dinosaurs. Yes, it's persisted for 400 million years. And the coelacanth is a special fish. It's distinct from other bony fish by these very unusual lobed fins that almost look like limbs. It's what led the person who discovered the coelacanth to refer to it as old forelegs. Old forelegs. Yes, that's what J.L.B. Smith first, he affectionately referred to the coelacanth as old forelegs. Well, we've posted an underwater video of a coelacanth at our website, theworld.org. What is your own personal fascination with the coelacanth? I've always been fascinated for an animal that has persisted for that length of time. And because there's not very much that we know about them, it's an enigmatic fish, we we still have a lot to learn about them. Right, and a, a lot of that education and research is coming through the Gombesa expedition. What's that all about? The expedition is a joint expedition between my institute, the South African Institute for Aquatic Biodiversity, the Paris Museum, and we're hoping to improve our understanding of how many coelacanths there are, what their habitat actually is, and various behavioral aspects of the ecology. We're hoping to find some young ones, which we've never found any juveniles before. Do you have any idea what the population, what the global population of coelacanths is? No, we don't. They're currently considered as critically endangered animals. The best estimates come from the Comores, and they estimate between 300 and 400 individuals on the west coast of Grand Comore. How dangerous are they? Well, we haven't ever experienced any problems with coelacanths. They're quite shy when they're approached by divers or submersible. They usually retreat into their caves. So we don't consider them dangerous. Are there any coelacanths in captivity? I mean, could you see them in an aquarium or are they they that rare? No, you can't see them in an aquarium because they live at depths and we're still trying to understand their physiology and their habitat preferences. No one's been able to keep one alive when they've brought it up from the deep, then they become very stressed and the animals have died. Dr. Sink, are you going to be diving down into any of those caves? We're going to be using a remotely operated vehicle for the population survey, but the Trimex divers, including the diver who discovered South Africa sea lacants, will be diving down into the caves. 
am trained in that kind of diving, but since I became a mother, uh, I don't indulge in trimix diving anymore. <laughs> right. Well, Dr. Sink, the best of luck uh, in your search for coelacanths, and appreciate you talking to us about it. Thank you. Dr. Kerry Sink is a marine ecologist at South Africa's National Biodiversity Institute. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. It's tough for most people in Spain to make ends meet in the midst of the ongoing economic crisis there. Spanish actors and artists have it especially rough. The bad economy and new taxes have most Spaniards spending less on culture, and many theaters are closing. In Barcelona, a small group of actors may have found a creative way to survive, as the world's Jerry Haddon explains. So Barcelona businessman Juan Abadías gets home from a trip to Colombia, and he finds this in his den. A bunch of his close friends, half the furniture pushed to the side, the couches turned funny. This is a total surprise, he says. My wife set it up. What it is, is a makeshift theater. The director asks people to turn off their cell phones. Then two actors appear and wander among the attentive guests. This is a well-known absurdist play called Delirio de Duo by the late Romanian-French playwright Eugene Ionesco, a man and woman trapped in a room, fighting, at least on the surface, over whether a snail and a tortoise are the same animal. The actors scurry about the living room, using a door, a window, some pillows from the couch as props. At times, they brush up against the audience. It's that intimate. The company is called Teatro en Apartamentos, or Theater in Apartments. And just how it ended up in Juan Abadías' living room is a story of both crisis and ingenuity. And it starts in Italy. With actor and director Sandro Dieli. I met up with him in Barcelona a few weeks before the show at the Abadías. He says he started this home theater movement last year in his hometown of Palermo. It's been so successful, he says, he expanded it to Spain. I was wondering what artists could do uh, in, a, in this situation, the economic situation at the moment. It's very difficult to find money for culture in general. Um, apartamentos is exactly the idea of imagining something different, taking culture to houses, private houses. But at the same time, we want the owner of the house to be responsible for opening his house to culture. Part of the responsibility means opening your wallet. The company lives off donations from its audiences. And so far, it's working. On this night, Dieli takes me to a different apartment for another show. <laughs> Performing in homes is nearly always quirky. Here, the actors get into costume in the pantry off the kitchen. As they warm up by the fridge, a sleepy roommate comes out of a bedroom, stumbles past en route to the bathroom. It makes actor José Barón smile. He says this weird intimacy before and during the show is exhilarating. What I like most here is that you can look into the eyes of each and every audience member, he says. It's as if this were your real life and you could talk to them about it. You can turn to an audience member and say, did you see that? Did you see what this jerk just said to me? The intimacy goes both ways, says Merche Erith. As an audience member, she says, you've got nowhere to hide. You are visible not only to the actors, but also to the rest of the people. So it's something that is different and you need to get used to it. Like some stupid thing, do I cross my legs or don't I? 
when did you think about that when you were as a regular audience in a theater? You never thought about that. And then it's like, okay, shall I smile? It's kind of weird, but it's interesting to feel. As for the businessman Juan Abadías, the guy who was surprised by his wife, he loved the show. It was fantastic, he says. This marks the end of those typical boring dinners where people sit around and tell the same old stories. Theater in Apartments has performed about a dozen shows so far, all of them well-received. The actors say if they can get the word out, this could become a full-time gig. They're also experimenting with dance and spoken word performances. The idea, to create a menu of choices for folks interested in culture, but uninterested in shelling out their dwindling cash at the box office. For The World, I'm Jerry Haddon in Barcelona. You can see just how intimate theater on a makeshift stage in a Barcelona home can be. Jerry sent us a video from one of the shows. That's at theworld.org. And finally, a musical collaboration that transcends religious differences. In India, there's a history of conflict between Hindus and Muslims. But even older than that history is the tradition of collaboration among musicians from both backgrounds, especially North Indian classical musicians like the two we want to tell you about now. You see, for us, the musicians, there is no distinction of caste, creed, religion, language, no barriers, because melody and rhythm, they don't have any religion. That's Shiv Kumar Sharma, a master of the santur, an instrument with more than 90 strings. He is currently on tour in the U.S. performing with another star, Zakir Hussain, on tabla, the percussion. On stage, Sharma's melodic sounds mix with Hussain's powerful rhythms, creating an improvised back-and-forth musical dialogue. Sherma says he developed his own way of playing the santur, originally a folk instrument from the Kashmir Valley. This is a staccato instrument, the only instrument of its kind, a stringed instrument which is neither plucked nor played with a bow. It's played with two wooden mallets. As for the tabla, Zakir Hussein often plays it at lightning-fast speeds. When a tabla player like Zakir Hussein is playing with me, I play the melody, I play the rag, and uh, I select the tal the rhythmic cycle, and uh, during that process, whatever I improvise, uh, Zakir comes out with his own ideas. You will want to see more of their collaboration, trust me. The world's Sonia Narang caught up with both Sharma and Hussein before a recent concert here in Boston. Her exclusive video of soundcheck, as well as interviews with the artists, are at theworld.org. That's all from us today. Eric Goldberg composed the world's theme music. 
From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Marco Werman. Have a great weekend. is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the Annenberg Foundation, by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live healthy, productive lives, GatesFoundation.org, the Carnegie Corporation, the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world, MacFound.org, and by the PRI Program Fund, supporting informed risk-taking in public radio programming. Contributors include Ken and Lucy Lehman, who believe that winning workplaces respect, reward, and invest in their employees. PRI Public Radio International.